This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is Politics Without the Boring Bits, brought to you again by Patrick Maguire. You've got me for another two episodes. Matt Chorley will be back on Monday. Today, we're marking a year since Nicola Sturgeon resigned. Do you remember where you were? I certainly remember where I was. I was sat in the presenter's chair in Times Radio at 10 o'clock when the news broke and had to speak about it for three hours. What a day it was. But what has changed in Scotland since? And how is Humza Yusuf, her successor, getting on? Can he escape Sturgeon's shadow? Is he bad at politics or merely unlucky? We've assembled exactly the sort of panel you want to speak to on this. We've got two Scottish political experts and both Alex Salmond and Ian Blackford to make the case for their respective views. So we're going to hear that in just a moment. After a really fascinating discussion between Manveen Rana and Matthew Syed, we start in Washington and end up with John Cleese on Christmas Day. You don't want to miss it. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. I'm joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast, who's in the studio. Hi, Matt. Hello. Uh, great to have you in the studio. And sadly, not in the studio, but one day, is Matthew Syed. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Manveen. Great to have you as ever. Always enjoy these discussions. Uh, let's start because there's so much to talk about. And I know you've both got interesting things to say. Uh, David Cameron in the US, urging politicians to stand up for freedom by voting in favour of that multi-billion dollar aid package for Ukraine. The bill's being delayed at the House of Representatives, where some Republicans are against it. The American support for Ukraine is being debated, and I urge those congressmen and women to pass that uh, bill, to provide that money, to provide those weapons to Ukraine. They are fighting off illegal Putin aggression and they need our support. We should be standing up for freedom, standing up for the right of this country to defend itself and making sure that Putin doesn't win. I hope that will happen, but be in no doubt we're going to back Ukraine for as long as it takes. And now Lord Cameron has written an article urging uh, the US Congress people to pass it. But Manveen, is this a welcome intervention? It didn't seem that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump's biggest fan in Congress, agreed. <laughs> Uh, well, I just think it's quite ironic because, you know, David Cameron has slightly fallen foul of this in the past. You know, in the run-up to Brexit, do you remember he sort of managed to persuade Obama to come out um, and say something? That famous back of the queue line. The, the back of the queue back line, of the queue. which, you know, they hoped would, would prove their point that, that Brexit would be a disaster. But it was so unusual to see an American president interfering in British politics and mm. it went down appallingly badly. Um, so having lived through that experience, I'm quite surprised that he's, he's venturing out to do the same to America, but particularly at a moment where, you know, the people he's trying to appeal to, the, the current crop of American Republicans, are cheering when Donald Trump says, you know, he wants to pull out of NATO or, or doesn't mind if, if Russia wants to invade any, uh, any European partners in NATO. Uh, you know, these are not people who are going to melt at the thought of the special relationship. Um, I can't help thinking he's pitching to the wrong audience. Well, yeah, the sort of Trump faction of the Republican Party is a very isolationist America first one. So they're not necessarily one for strong bilateral uh, international relationships. I mean, Matthew, the, the line that's really exercised some people 
in DC from David Cameron, uh, pardon the pun, is his comparison between Republicans who want to obstruct this deal and those who appeased Adolf Hitler. I mean, that's really wound some of them up. Do you think he's right? Do you think the moment of historical import we face is similar? Or was it sort of a needless provocation? Well, I think he's right to say that we have uh, appeased Vladimir Putin, but whether uh, Adolf Hitler was the best historical example rhetorically is pro- is a slightly different question. I think that was almost probably likely to backfire. I do think the risk is very big. And the argument that Cameron made that uh, if you allow Putin to bank what he already has in the Donbass, uh, he will retrench, regroup, um, continue to militarize, and then continue, I think is absolutely right. But it is perhaps, Patrick, important to look at the historical backdrop to this. Cameron <clears throat> was prime minister, uh, in 2014, when Putin invaded Crimea and did precious little, uh, uh, Cameron was an appeaser himself. And the argument that Donald Trump, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump by any means, but the argument that he makes that European nations have free road on American taxpayers in terms of defense for 20, 30, 40 years is absolutely correct. European behavior has been a disgrace. The word delinquent, if anything, underdoes it. Um, And I can understand American taxpayer anger that they are paying a great deal towards a problem in Europe, while Europeans have dillied and dallied to a certain extent on on Ukraine, but far more significantly, I think the average European defense expenditure is about 1.7-1.6% of GDP. America's been paying 3.5 for years and years. That's completely unfair. And part of the explanation for the rise of Trump is European delinquency. And if we don't see that, Cameron, there's no acknowledgement of that from Cameron, from what I remember in that piece. And I understand the American anger. I feel sorry for the American taxpayer that's worked very, very hard to drive the rules-based order from which many other nations have benefited. And American blue-collar workers have certainly not benefited from. Because that's the Trump line, isn't it, Manveen, that... Nobody else has been paying their way. Initially, he was saying to people, and indeed he said the other week, didn't he? He said those who aren't paying up to NATO under his presidency, he invited the Russians to attack them. So Trump's always had that critique of NATO, but Mm. right now it's sort of entering a sort of much scarier territory for many people. Yeah, but, um, you know, I mean, Matthew's absolutely right. You know, David Cameron, uh, actually under his watch, again, sort of reduced an awful lot of defence spending um, and also started to do this awful thing, which I think the Americans you know, were could see it was so blatant, but basically massaging the figures. So you'd still say you're meeting the commitment of 2%, but, you know, you'd suddenly start including pensions of people who worked under defence as part of that pot. You know, you're not actually spending it on capabilities that could be used in a war tomorrow. Um, and that's why America ends up sort of basically you know, we'd be lost without them. They end up sort of carrying the bulk of, of the, the actual defence work. Um, and that, you know, that does have to be realigned. But now that we are at a, at a moment, you know, after decades of, of NATO, um, you know, being there as the stalwart sort of, that, that stops uh, the, the certainly Europe falling apart because we're on, we're on, the, um, on the, the edge, really. But um, you're, you're suddenly in a position where it feels like that, that could really happen. You know, that could happen now. And it's the worst moment to be pulling the plug on, on NATO because, you know, the Russians have militarized in a way that we haven't begun to. Uh, you know, they've lost a lot of tanks, but they've built the capability now and they're, they're producing day and night. Mm. They have, you know, they've built up their stocks to, to such a, a, an extent. While we've sort of let all of this sort of slip, uh, there's a real danger that if, you know, if they did decide to attack, and it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, a, a European capital um, a, a, around Western Europe, but, you know, if they did suddenly decide to go over the border into Estonia, we, we would be in real trouble. Uh, Article 5 means we would have to... No, we would... Uh, any NATO member would have to... Oh, an attack on one is an attack on all. So Wh- that's, Which is uh, why the Americans are now talking about this two-tier system with Article 5 too, where if you haven't been paying your dues, Article 5 doesn't apply to you mm. and NATO membership is suddenly... Um, you know, a, a different tiered system. If you're in arrears, you don't get the full uh, the full package. I mean, in defence of David Cameron, uh, who is not, I assume this isn't the same David. David on the text, listener David, says, Cameron's Etonian chutzpah knows no boundaries. That was an idiotic way to communicate with our biggest allies. I mean, the argument for appointing David Cameron to this position was he was a figure of some global import, had existed on the world stage before, 
knew how to knew how this stuff worked. It's difficult, Matthew, to imagine any of his predecessors, his recent predecessors, being able to generate the headlines he's done in in Washington with this sort of plea, isn't it? I, I disagree. I, really? I, I think Cameron is completely undermined by the history. I mentioned the appeasement of Putin in 2014. It was impossible to coherently apply sanctions to the Putin coterie of kleptocrats because all of that dirty Russian money was coming into into Britain, into the city under Cameron's mm. watch. I mean, Russian donors, Russian associated with donors were giving money to the Conservative Party. And when it comes to the threat, Russia is a big threat, no doubt mm. about that. They have a huge arsenal of nuclear weapons. But the, re the real risk is China. Um, and it was uh, Cameron and Osborne who opened the door to China's infiltration of our institutions. I mean, as late as Boris Johnson, we wanted that in our uh, for 5G infrastructure. So the Tories have got a terrible track record on foreign policy. I think it will be seen as one of the great strategic misjudgments. And just going back a little, you know, these European governments that were talking about the peace dividend uh, of the global rules-based order, particularly after the fall of the Cold War, and they were spending less and less on defence and using it for welfare spending. It's left, it's left Europe in a terrible place if uh, Trump goes in a very avowedly isolationist direction. Strategic autonomy is a c completely absurd notion with the state of European militaries at the moment. And you've got to remember that you, you can skimp on defence spending in the short term, but if you go to war, I think... Britain's spending on defence during the Second World War was 50% of GDP. You know, half of our, you know, in the end, you pay a terrible, terrible price. Um, so, you know, so to go back to Cameron, I think he is the worst person to be in Washington <laughs> making these points. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with that. You know, for most of these Republicans he's appealing to, China is a much bigger threat than mm. Russia. He was seen as being much too cosy with China. Um, I remember being in Washington, D.C. in 2014 and in a meeting with the State Department. So this isn't even like the political level, but all the way through the system. Uh, I, I Just for being British, I got a telling off because they were so angry with Cameron, who they thought was sort of... Um, uh, had messed up on, on Syria because they sort of said, you, you know, you marched us up the hill, you talked about, um, you know, made us agree to this red lines, you know, we, we will go in and invade, and then you you held a, a vote in Parliament which you hadn't properly prepared for, lost it, and now we're suddenly left on our own to try and work out if we have to, if we have to go into Syria. They were, you know, they were... There was so much anger. I think they sort of thought it had been clumsily done. So I'm not sure he has a massive amount of respect in D.C., uh, Matthew, you've been writing about why this matters beyond the defence picture. I mean, it's all linked, but you've been writing about the energy crisis and how Vladimir Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson sort of exposed a certain naivety about it. Yeah, yes, energy is at the absolute centre of the way China and Russia thinks about the world and the way we should be thinking about the world. You, you can't do anything without energy. As you know, Patrick, this conversation is taking place via electricity on computers that are built out of energy. Everything we do, uh, you require an energy source. And we kind of forgot that in the West because we generated incredible growth off the back of very cheap fossil fuels uh, for a couple of hundred years. But the fuels are slowly running out. Um, we're having to expend ever more energy to frack and refine very difficult products like tar sands. And therefore, the, the price of hydrocarbons, I think, over the next 10 to 20 years will, will steadily rise. And we're having to transition to a fundamentally new energy system. This is one of the greatest challenges our species has, has ever faced. And the, the renewable energy is very mineral and metal intensive. Um, and there is going to be a requirement for all nations that want access to energy in order to fuel their civilizations will need access to a whole range of minerals and metals china has cornered the processing of of many of these 95 percent um ukraine is a mineral superpower it's part of the explanation for putin's invasion um so we we america doesn't have any cobalt mines anymore in the democratic republic of congo this could be very significant so i do think that our foreign policy has to be very coherent and strategic to understand why China and Russia are doing what they are doing 
and to act more sensibly. And, and at the moment, I, I, I'm sad to say, I don't think we're doing that. Uh, well, we're going to move on in just a moment, but I just want to read this text out from a listener, Mike. Uh, in a who carries the most baggage into the job contest, then Cameron would give Trump a run to his money. So listeners very much agreeing with you, uh, Manveen and Matthew. Well, since we're talking about politics and politicians. Let's head back to Westminster. Uh, later in the show, I'm going to be speaking to Matthew Torbett. Now, Matt is the man who runs perhaps one of the trickiest meetings in Parliament and the only meeting in Parliament that's guaranteed not to leak, which is the meeting of its Alcoholics Anonymous group. Uh, it's a really interesting discussion and he had this to say about the drinking culture in Westminster. It's not like other workplaces and actually... I think the, the only way it's unfair on Westminster at times is people saying there's a culture there. You, you, you do well to find a culture anywhere that also had three bars in a workplace. It's only going to increase bad behaviour, people acting unprofessionally and, and whatever else. Well, Manveen, I mean, I imagine you know a fair bit about workplaces with heavy drinking cultures, having worked at the Daily Telegraph in the, <laughs> at, the, at the turn of this century. Um, there's lots of debate over whether Parliament should still be able to sell alcohol... From the outside, what, what's, 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 your, what's your sense? I think it's difficult. I think, you know, we've had this in the past where um, when you suddenly had a spate of women coming in as MPs, they realised that so much of parliamentary work, so, so many of the, of the deals that were needed for bills to pass were being done in the bars that they felt excluded because they had to be home by bedtime if they had children. Uh, and, you know, you sort of had like this move to try and change the hours and try and change the working culture. But as long as those bars are there, it's, it's very difficult to do that. I think for people outside, for voters, the thing that really offends people is that not only are there bars on the premises fair enough. They're subsidised. We are basically subsidising MPs to get drunk at work and make even worse decisions. Um, and for some reason, that's, that's considered okay. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have that in any normal office. And yet we make this massive exemption as if they're not really working, when that's exactly what we're paying them to do. Uh, what do you think, Matthew? Of, of uh, having bars in the House of, in, in Parliament? I, well, I'm a, well, I'm a... Or alcohol in the workplace generally. Well, I'm a big fan of, of uh, well, I mean, it depends on where in the workplace. I'm a big fan of alcohol. I know, I know that it is, <laughs> is a blight on many we people's all are. lives. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I worry that we sometimes demonise alcohol. There are certainly some people who have a uh, addiction problem and need all the help they can, can get. And there are certain, I guess, drinking cultures that can mm. go to excess. But for many of us, alcohol is one of the great things of life. I mean, I love getting to the end of a hard day and getting a cold Erdinger, which is, which is a wheat beer, which is just Very good. fantastic. Jürgen Klopp's favourite beer, Matthew, I know it well. Erdinger is? Yeah, indeed. Oh, I did, <laughs> as a sports journalist, I should know. Oh, that's fascinating because... Or at least he has local. a commercial relationship with Erdinger. They made special commemorative cans in 2020 for Liverpool's league win. That I is still, excellent I still, knowledge. I, well, I still have one at home, so... Uh, no yeah. way. Because no, you're a Liverpool fan, aren't I you? I am, I am, I am. Yeah, 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 of course, of course, which is where the Mary McDonough connection, which was my economics O-level teacher. And my economics A-level teacher, yeah. And she obviously <laughs> moved from Reading back up north. But, um... um yeah, that's so interesting because my kids know I love Erdinger. I mean, it shouldn't turn this into an advert. It is a fantastic, fantastic beer. I had one last night. And me and my daughter were in um, the supermarket and we saw so She said, look, there's somebody over there with an Erdinger jacket on. Um, and I was like, gosh, I've never seen one of them. But maybe that was Liverpool-related to anywhere. I don't know. But yeah, going back to your question, um, taking the edge off a tough day with a, with a glass of wine or, or a beer or g and whatever it happens to be, I think is one of the great joys of life. Mm. And uh, I, I worry when we demonise the little pleasures that make life. <laughs> we, we live and we, you know, we live and die. And those little pleasures are, are not small things. In the end, they're fundamental to what it means to, to have this brief illumination of existence that we call life. <laughs> it, it rem oh, sorry, go on, I was going to say, I would totally agree with that, but I, I would just argue that there are so many pubs around Parliament that you could do what any normal worker would do, which is leave the office and go, go to one of the pubs and do exactly that. I think having them on the premises kind of almost encourages people to go back uh, and vote or do the things that they're supposed to be doing whilst being ever so slightly drunk. I mean, I've walked into Parliament before uh, around midday and, mm. and found an awful lot of MPs who, to be honest, are worse for wear. Now, in slightly different news, the stars of Monty Python have had a public fallout over money. And Times Radio's Jane Garvey had this to say yesterday. 
Monty Python, I, um, I'm probably, even I'm probably a bit too young to properly find them funny, although I'm sure people can take me on. 87222, start your message with the word times. Why were Monty Python funny? Well, John Holmes, comedian, writer and broadcaster, is prepared to take Jane Garvey on. It wouldn't be the first time, Patrick, to be honest. She's, you know, <laughs> you know jab it, jabbing the stick into the hornet's nest of Python there. <laughs> Classic Garvey. Um, <laughs> I will take her on. Yeah, I mean, I, I am also too young to remember them when they first started, but my introduction to them came at an early age because I was about, I don't know, maybe five. And so this would have been... My God, mid-70s, something like that. And my mum was a nurse. Uh, she worked nights. And my dad, when she went off at nine o'clock uh, to go to work, he would get me out of bed and bring me downstairs and sit me in front of repeats that were then of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And he would laugh his head off. I didn't know what the hell was going on. But by osmosis, uh, I started to learn very quickly that people being hit in the face with a big fish and falling into a lock was very funny indeed. And that was kind of the, where I, I sort of got a taste for it so it's all down to my dad really and the albums he had as well because of course you know who didn't have all the Monty Python albums apart from Jane Garvey who clearly did not apart from, yeah apart from Jane Garvey she's fighting a lonely crusade on that one um, <laughs> Matthew you are uh, a good friend a confidant of one of the Monty Python boys aren't you we've become very cl- John Cleese my one of my great heroes I uh, got to know him when doing a Radio 4 series on the philosopher Karl Popper who Cleese is a big admirer of, as am I. And we got to know each other. Became We've become very, very close, kind of close to the point where we, we, we had a long half an hour, hour long chat on Christmas Day, that, that wow. kind of closeness. <laughs> wow. He's an absolute joy. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man. I worried that if I got to know him, he's something of a hero to me, that he'd turn out to be cantankerous and a bit difficult. He's the complete opposite of what you might expect. Warm-hearted, very wonderful with my kids, you know, close to Kathy, my wife. Um, and just very kind and humane, very, very kind, warm person. But the comedy, I think, I mean, the Monty Python, the TV show, there are bits that I think are genius, but Monty Python's achievements with Life of Brian, for example, I think is just completely immortal. We'll never forget it. What do you think, Mummy? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, like John, I sort of grew up in a household where it was always on. And I think you just appreciate different bits of it at different ages. So mm. as a kid, there is the physical comedy There's around the, the ministry the silly of walks silly walks and... and all of that, which is very appealing. And I, you know, I just remember sort of rolling around laughing, thinking this was brilliant without necessarily getting the joke. And then, you know, you sort of move on to the... Uh, you know, you, you, you almost learn how to make jokes through it. You know, there's that that bit where you've got the Spanish Inquisition stuck on a bus. You know, I defy anyone to watch that and not laugh. Um, and then, as, as Matthew said, you know, the life of Brian is is kind of is the kind of humour that touches on something which is so obviously true that it becomes a part of life. You know, I've sat in so many meetings where people will talk about the People's Front of Judea because it is it is something we all recognise, and to, you know, it's 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 just brilliant humour. Um, I, I sadly am not a friend of John Cleese, but... Uh, there's, I, still I, there's, there's still time. There's still time. There's still time. Well, you're a friend of, you're a friend of Matthew Syed, and by, you know, maybe, maybe he can say, broker I feel, an introduction. I feel, <laughs> we can all... We can all I'm, just, I'm one handshake us. off. Um, <laughs> but also, yeah, I, I think it's different, because normally you'd be, you'd be really worried that your, your idols are, aren't very nice or are cantankerous. With John Cleese, I'd almost want him to be. If he's not Basil Fawlty, something's gone wrong. <laughs> Don't make him nice. <laughs> well, 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 John, in a, in a sentence, or two, what would your message be to Jane Garvey and all those listening I, to this discussion saying, the, I just can't get it? I think that you've got to, the films are absolutely your gateway in, you know, the Life of Brian, uh, Holy Grail, you know, uh, just timeless pieces of work. But what they did, you know, for me, they're very much sort of the Beatles of comedy because what they did was they brought this absurdism and this surrealism and this, and what, what I didn't even realise when I was young was just a very intellectual wordplay, mm. which, you know, I didn't know what Proust was, but, you know, <laughs> Only afterwards, years later, you sort of go, oh, okay. But it was just the rhythms of it. And I think, you know, what they what they did was they, they wrote comedy and it was kind of like music, you know, and it was sort of our rock and roll, I think, uh, growing up. That was Manveen Rana and Matthew Syed. Remember, you can hear Manveen on our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times, wherever you get your podcasts from, especially the Times Radio app, which I greatly recommend. And you can read Matthew Syed in the Times and Sunday Times every week, practically every day. Just go to the website and get yourself a digital subscription. But now, let's head to Scotland. (laughs) 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. It's been a year ago today since this. Good morning. If you're just tuning in, Nicola Sturgeon is to resign as Scotland's First Minister after more than eight years in her role. I have believed that part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. And when that time came, to have the courage to do so. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now. What comes next? will be a real battle for the soul of the SNP. I have been trusted by Nicholas Sturgeon with some of the toughest jobs in government. I'm the only candidate here who has said they will stand up against Westminster. We should be joining the European Union, rejoining the European Union uh, when we're an independent country. I also feel like the luckiest man in the world to be standing here as the leader of the SNP a party I joined almost 20 years ago and that I love so dearly. Yes, it's been a year since Nicola Sturgeon stood down and today we ask whether Humza Youssef has managed to escape her shadow. Is the new SNP leader unlucky, bad at politics or indeed both? Later on, we'll hear from the former First Minister Alex Salmond and the SNP's former leader in Westminster, Ian Blackford, two men who know Sturgeon and Youssef very well indeed. But first, let's look back on some of the key moments of the year that was that have come to define Humza's time as leader. I'm joined by Times Radio's Cullen McDonald. Hi, Cullen. Hello. And Katrina Stewart from the Herald. Hi, Katrina. Good morning. Cullen, let's get your assessment then. In a sentence or two, where are the SNP now? A year on from the forced retirement, the unexpected retirement, whatever you want to call it, of their most successful leader? I think there's a perception of something of a limbo. And I think that that comes from a few sources. One being Hamza Youssef kind of struggling over the last almost a year since he uh, was elected as new leader, struggling to kind of define himself against the backdrop of Nicola Sturgeon and arguably Alex Salmon before her, who were such strong, charismatic, vision-driven leaders. And Hamza Youssef is somewhat struggled to pinpoint exactly what he stands for, what is going to be something that defines him. So I think that's one thing. The limbo also because independent support remains around 50-50. A recent poll suggests it could be as high as 53% in favour of independent, but the dial isn't particularly shifting on that. Clearly a core reason for the SNP and their existence. And then when you turn to the kind of electoral polling, uh, there is a suggestion that the SNP will lose seats. Um, I mean, all sorts of polling on this. Basically, they are. It, it looks from the polling, the polling sort of trend is that they will lose seats at a general election. Labour will make gains, as is likely to be the case uh, uh, elsewhere as well. But I think that all feeds a narrative when you combine that with ferries that don't sail, an education system that isn't flying, uh, and public services, the health system, uh, health service rather, that is creaking. It all adds to this sense of just sort of status quo, limbo, paralysis almost. Status quo, limbo, paralysis, Katrina. Do you agree? Um, I do agree. I think the, the relentless narrative has been that Hamza Youssef has not had his troubles to seek and it's not been a particularly fair or easy ride to him because he's had one challenge after another and many of these challenges have been hangovers left behind from Nicola Sturgeon's government. But the argument against that, of course, is that if he was a savvy enough political operator, if he had the charisma, if he had the team around him, then none of these things would matter because he would have been able 
to chart a, a clearer course forward mm. for the SNP. And that's, as Callum points out, that's one of the issues. He is the continuity candidate and he hasn't been able to set out a new path for the SNP. He hasn't been nimble enough to tackle many of the challenges that have come up to face him. And so there is very much this uh, issue. I mean, Callum mentions air ferries that aren't sailing. The SNP very much feels a bit like a, a, one of Scotland's ferries. It's uh, leaking, it's not sailing, it's not moving forward at all. And there's a story in this morning's Times about the maintenance bill uh, for, Ca- for Caledonia McBride, uh, McBrain ferries being, you know, about a million quid unexpectedly. Uh, so it's an ongoing saga. I mean, it sounds a bit like, Katrina, you're talking about a leader who is both unlucky and a bit bad at politics, yeah? Yeah, I think the Michael Matheson iPad saga really showed where Hamza Yusuf's flaws are because that shouldn't have become the drama that it became. He could Mm. very easily have gotten out in front of that. He could have decisively sacked Michael Matheson. It wouldn't, you know, it didn't have to be a long-term thing. He could have brought him back into Cabinet, but instead he stood by his man and this rumbled on and rumbled on and there was no decisive leadership shown, and that very much is the issue. And, and one of the other issues is this lack of a very clear path yeah, towards you... independence, because one of the things that the SNP has going for it is that it is speaking to independent supporters, but Scottish Labour are now filling that gap as well and speaking directly to um, independent supporters. So, you know, it's just relentless challenge after challenge for Hamza Yusuf. Well, just before we look back at some of the key moments, Callum, in a word... Unlucky, bad at politics, or both? How does What best describes Hamza Yusuf? I would say both. I would say both. I think he definitely inherited an absolute you know, nightmare from Nicola Sturgeon, whether that is on uh, the gender recognition reform bill, which arguably was a contributing factor to her uh, demise and her resignation, but then also not stamping on things that he then had to consider. Highly protected marine areas, the deposit return scheme, uh, the Butte House Agreement that keeps the Scottish Greens in coalition government with the SNP. All of these things have been really heavily criticised. And I'm going to borrow from Jeff Aberdeen here, who was Alex Salmon's chief of staff, who says that when you become a leader and this is a kind of conventional wisdom in politics, when you become a leader, that is your chance to distance yourself from the things you didn't like or were unpopular and set a whole new direction. And a lot of these things have fallen by the wayside in the subsequent months, but the issue is that they were lingering. They were an anchor on Hamza Yusuf's time uh, when he was, you know, the honeymoon period, really, of being a leader. And that seems to sort of be following him even to this day, a bit of a shadow over his leadership. Well, it's been quite the year for Hamza Yusuf and Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Let's look back at some of the key moments. Of course, it was just a few days after Yusuf took the reins as First Minister, winning that narrower-than-expected victory over Kate Forbes, very much the change candidate in the SNP election, that Peter Murrell, the SNP's former chief executive, married to Nicola Sturgeon, of course, was arrested over a probe into the SNP's finances. The last few days have been obviously difficult, quite traumatic at times, but I understand that is part of a process. It was extraordinary. Officers erecting a forensic tent at the couple's home. A few months later, Sturgeon herself was arrested. When she appeared in public after being released from custody, this is what she had to say. You know, I can't say very much just now. Uh, What I will say is uh, reiterate the statement I issued last Sunday. I am certain that I have done nothing wrong. Uh, We should say, of course, she faces no further charges. Um, Katrina, you were saying earlier that Humza Youssef, obviously elected as the continuity candidate, had the approval of Nicola Sturgeon. Kate Forbes was promising a rather different strategy. But then he was very intimately connected to two people who were then arrested, couldn't really present himself as a clean break from that regime, couldn't do what many people said he should do, which was suspend Nicola Sturgeon, suspend her husband. And that sort of overshadowed everything since, hasn't it? It has. It has completely overshadowed everything since. And any time Hamza Yusuf tries to move forward from this, announce new plans, set out new policies, even tack slightly away from the, the, the sort of continuity of where the SNP had been, this just keeps coming up again. And of course, it wasn't just the arrest. It was the incredible scenes that we saw of the tent on the lawn, of officers being emptied of documents. It was a very sort of visceral, visual scene that has very much stayed with voters. And how Hamza Yusuf moves forward from that is very difficult to see. But, you know, he has opportunities. Callum mentioned um, 
the Gender Recognition Reform Act that very much became a culture war issue that, that plagued Nicola Sturgeon that has haunted the SNP, we're about to see a very similar thing with the conversion therapy ban. So it'll be interesting to see how that's handled, whether Hamza Yusuf manages to navigate his way through this. And that seems like quite a small thing, but it is one of these things that really sort of captures the public narrative and, uh, and, and really sort of forms an impression of how the SNP operates. So I, I think these things will be very important moving forward. But yes, I mean, it's been impossible to move away from Operation Branch Form. The investigation is still ongoing. So, you know, there's no conclusion to that either. It is very much still hanging over the SNP, hanging over Hamza and of course, hanging over Nicola Sturgeon as well. And COVID hasn't helped Nicola Sturgeon's handling of COVID. She was lauded for her handling of the pandemic. And I remember writing a story for The Times in October 2020, whose top line was, Nicola Sturgeon is more popular in England than any other politician giving her handling of the pandemic. When the COVID inquiry was in Scotland recently, however, um, you know, that that story very much changed. None of Nicola Sturgeon's WhatsApp messages to the pandemics were handed over for official government record. And she told that inquiry last month that no key decisions were made on WhatsApp, but admitted it was widely used. Has the COVID inquiry changed the public's view of Yusuf and Sturgeon? Humza, of course, was her health secretary. I think it has changed the perception of that leadership uh, ability of Nicola Sturgeon. Now, I think, you know, what she said to the UK COVID inquiry is quite interesting in that she said, you know, she often thinks she would have preferred not to have been first minister during that time. And I do think we always need to approach assessments of politicians during the pandemic period with a slight degree of they were facing challenges, the like of which none of us were familiar with, uh, we'd not experienced ourselves before. And so all of this needed navigated afresh, basically. Um, I think what what was difficult for Sturgeon was the narrative that was building even before her evidence, which was around the WhatsApps. The lack of transparency, and this seeps into other parts of her time in office as well, where perhaps it was, in the, certainly in the latter days, it was quite a closed show where people weren't able to sort of access her and it was only a select few people that were close to her and around her by way of advisors and staff that were kind of in that inner circle, as it were. I think for Hamza Youssef, the COVID inquiry, he's probably emerged reasonably unscathed. I, I think what it didn't do was kind of bolster his credentials. I think people still point to things like the health service and the condition it's in in Scotland as a legacy of his time uh, as health secretary. And I do think that even in the moments where he has tried to define himself, whether that be uh, around the COVID inquiry or with things like policy announcements which he has made, income tax changes in the recent budget under his government have proved to be dramatically unpopular particularly with business who worry that uh, higher rates of income tax are going to drive people out of Scotland. Whether it's on energy policy where the SNP Scottish government is still working on what its actual policy is but its draft policy has been pretty unpopular in the northeast of Scotland whether it's the council tax freeze that was whooped and hollered at SNP conference not that long ago but has proved to be a huge source of dispute with local authorities who are already absolutely threadbare these are the moments where Hamza Yusuf has tried to cut through and some law Loyalists have been, you know, really keen on some of these policies. Council tax freeze and one of the SNP's greatest hits in many ways from years ago. Uh, but actually, these these moments, including the COVID inquiry, haven't really gone in his favour. It would seem. Uh, well, it's been quite the year. I think we can all agree, and we haven't even discussed. I think Katrina mentioned at the very top of this discussion, which was Michael Matheson and his iPad. But it's not been the first year Humza Youssef would have wished for. And I think between the two of you, Callum McDonald from Times Radio and Katrina Stewart from The Herald, we're getting a sense that Humza Youssef is both unlucky and maybe not the best politician, uh, the best politician the SNP has ever produced. Callum, we were talking about some of the missteps, mistakes, unlucky inheritances Humza Youssef has had. It's important to note he has had some successes too. Yeah, I do think one of the defining moments of this year for Hamza Youssef has been his response to, uh, well, in the aftermath of the Hamas terror attacks on the 7th of October last year. Uh, he and his family have something of a personal stake in that uh, his uh, wife, Nadia, has a Palestinian father. Both of her parents were trapped in Gaza as Israel kind of retaliated, basically, following those terror attacks. And the couple only managed to escape the, uh, Nadia, um, his wife, 
wife's parents only managed to escape uh, sort of well into November. And Hamza Yusuf's response, I think, was praised in terms of its humanity, uh, its grace given his personal response. I remember it was all happening around the time of SNP conference and completely understandably, he looked exhausted at Mm. that conference. Not only did he have a speech to make, but he had this personal turmoil to deal with as well. And I actually think that was a standout moment for him this year in the way that he approached that, dealt with that, uh, communicated around that as well. Well, Ian Blackford, MP for the SNP, joins me now, former Westminster leader of the SNP. Morning, Ian. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, Good morning, Ian. Thank you very much for joining us. So a year on from Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, your assessment of how Hamza Youssef is getting on, is it the end of an era for SNP leadership? I think a lot of voters looking on might think you haven't handled this generational transition well. Well, it's been a challenging time, let's be honest about that. But uh, at the end of the day, we're a few months away from a a UK general election and we're looking forward to that. There's been some polls over the course of the last few days that still indicate that the SNP would be the largest party by far in Scotland. The opportunity of wiping out the uh, six Tory MPs that were elected at the last election, for example. And I think what is important is that Hamza sets out the stall as to what are the reasons that people should be voting for the SNP. Callum talked about Hamza's performance at the SNP conference, dealing with the personal difficult circumstances he had around his family being trapped in Gaza. And I think there is an example where not only has he needed to make sure that he was there for his family, but he showed real leadership in what is a crisis. All of us would call out what happened with Hamas. All of us want to see the hostages released. All of us want to see uh, peace and security in that region. But we need to do that by having a plan for peace and security, by recognising that we need ultimately to have a a two-state solution. And I think he has been uh, plotted, not just uh, at home here, but throughout the world as well for the leadership he's shown. I would say to anyone that what they need to do is to listen to the man when he speaks. There is a great empathy that he has uh, for people. And I've had the opportunity of chairing meetings where he's uh, addressed an audience. And I think what people will find, that that strength of personality that he has, but indeed also the vision and the depth of vision that Hamza has is something that will come through. And I would say in sharp contrast to the two opponents that we have at Westminster and, and Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. So let's judge him on what uh, what the offering is that we have as we go into this election campaign. When you're knocking doors, in in Scotland, chapping doors, as I believe it's called up there, what what are you going to say? What what are the achie- what are Humza Yusuf's achievements? What can you point to domestically that is better now than it necessarily was in you know a year ago, four years ago? Well, of course, every. Every First Minister are going to have their own personality and put their own individual stamp on it. And I think what he has done is he's had people of talent that he's brought into Cabinet and given them their heads to do the job that, that, they're, that they're there to do. I mean, you've talked about the, the health service, for example. There's a new health secretary in there, I think, carrying on from the work that had already been done about making sure that we're driving down waiting times. Um, you know, you talk about chapping doors in the Highlands, for example. We have an, a new national treatment centre in Inverness. Uh, which is really delivering results for people that need treatment, whether it's for eye treatment, whether it's for uh, hip and knee surgery, for example, and so on. So these things are beginning to work. I think on the economy, um, Neil Grey, when he was in that post before he moved on to health, again showed that his door, the First Minister's door, was open. We need to make sure that we are driving uh, the green energy revolution. I've been working with the government, for example, on an industrial strategy, and the First Minister has highlighted that we're going to have an industrial council, a minister that will have responsibility for that. Lots of people talk about industrial strategy, Patrick, but the SNP has a plan to do that. Indeed, in the, the work that we've done, for example, with the likes of David Skilling, an opportunity to create as much as 235,000 jobs between now and 2050, a real plan for transition. When again, Callum was talking about the North East, we will do that. We will make sure that we put the investment in place. Look at what's happening in the Highlands, for example, with the investment that's going on with Sumitomo for the cable manufacturing facility. So there's lots of things that are happening, but it needs to happen at pace. Everybody wants to see energy security. And of course, there's a global race to do that. But we will show our leadership to make sure that we've got a plan to drive investment into the economy. You're talking this morning about the UK dipping into recession. Where is the plan in the UK? We know that if we can put Scotland back to work, we can drive in that investment, we'll drive up living standards, we'll create new jobs and deliver the prosperity that people need. And crucially through doing that, give us the tax receipts that will allow us to invest in our public services, invest in local government, for example. Again, another theme that you've talked about this morning. All of, all of which is very well and good, Ian, and the sort of thing that does win elections. But don't won't most voters, when push comes to shove, 
take the same view that Kate Forbes did in the leadership contest, which was Humza, nice guy though he is, was health secretary when the hospitals weren't working, transport secretary when the ferries weren't working. You know, insert any cabinet brief he's had, things haven't really worked. Why should why should voters reward him with uh, another term in government and 40 more MPs? Well, look, let's, let's take both these things. Let's take health and let's take transport over the ferries. As far as health is concerned, our record over the last few years compares very favourably with England and Wales, for example, we've all had challenges, of course, of recovering from COVID. But there's an absolute determination that between now and when we face the, the electorate in 2026 in Scotland, that we drive down waiting time. That's a commitment that uh, we are absolutely passionate about delivering on. You know, on the ferries, yes, of course, we've had the well-documented challenges with, with Ferguson's. And no one's going to defend that that's been nothing other than a, than a shambles. But, you know, I, I have many ferry routes in my own constituency. And actually, when you look at the reliability record of Carmack, it stands up well against international comparisons. Actually, if you, if you, look, at the, if you, if you look at the service delivery of Carmack, so leaving aside bad weather, then it's, then it's a fleet that operates extremely well. And actually, if you look at the age of the fleet, and contrast that internationally as well. It's not as bad as some of you would would have you believe. I actually get very few emails from constituents that use the ferries on a daily, weekly basis and a regular basis actually complaining about the service. I can think about the service to the small isles. I can think to Razi, the one I've got between Sky and the mainland, for example, as well. And people are very proud of the fact that we've got a service in the main that we can actually rely on. Listening to that was Alex Salmon, the former SNP leader, Scottish First Minister, and now leader of Alaba. Alex, what do you make of that defence of Humza Yusuf? <laughs> I'm sitting here with my mouth open, actually. The, the, the defence of the ferries was <laughs> the most amazing thing I've ever heard. No doubt that insouciance will serve Ian well in the House of Lords if you have a guest there. <laughs> uh, Humza Yusuf, then, you know him well. You saw him rise as a politician. Is he up to the job? Is he a worthy successor to yourself and the Nicola Sturgeon uh, you knew? Well, I, I mean, I, I gave him his first job, not just in government, I, I gave him his first job. <laughs> so I, I've known Hubs a long time and I've liked him a long time and universally he's regarded as a, a, a nice guy. And you've covered most of the issues which confronted him. I mean, he was left with the ultimate poison chalice, uh, not just lots of things overhanging his administration, but some disastrous policy cul-de-sacs. Uh, which weren't of his making, but nonetheless he inherited. So he was dealt a very bad hand. Equally, he hasn't uh, defined his own brand of leadership. I mean, for example, he's effectively jesting the, the nonsense of self-identification, silliness of bottle schemes, uh, uh, complete uh, uh, disastrous uh, initiatives like fishing bans. He's abandoned all these things. What he hasn't done is put into that vacuum his own policy programme. You know, if you're going to abandon your, your predecessor's mistakes, then what, what you do is you do it for flourish. You say, there's a, 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 new, a new administration with new ideas. I'm clearing the decks to unveil my own initiatives. Uh, and with the exception, probably, of the uh, Palestinian situation, which you've cited, you know, Hamza hasn't managed to say anything which actually defines his leadership. So he, he's managed to create a vacuum where he's dismissed the policies of Nicola Sturgeon very sensibly, but he hasn't actually brought in his own leadership style. And that, that's his central difficulty as First Minister. Now, in terms of strategy and politics, again, it's about what he hasn't done. He hasn't mended the divisions within the SNP. I mean, when you emerge victorious from a, a close leadership, uh, campaign, then you know. Normal, normally, what you do is you look at your rival and you make sure you bring them closely into your administration. Uh, and Kate Forbes um, and Ash Reagan happened to be two of the, the most talented people he had at his disposal, and yet he excluded them and continues to exclude Kate Forbes. Ash Reagan, of course, has joined Alaba, but he continues to uh, exclude Kate Forbes from his administration. And this is ridiculous. Uh, and last year, over the last year, he was also offered the opportunity of a Scotland United platform for the election. You know, so one single pro-independence candidate in each constituency, and he, he rejected that almost without a thought. So it's more about what Hamza hasn't done than what he has done. There's been a, a, his great difficulties thus far. Mind you, you know, you know, London commentators, you know, like nothing better than the reading the last rites of the SNP. Mm. It should be said that despite all of these things that you've mentioned, the SNP is still marginally ahead of Labour in the opinion polls. 
uh, which, you know, should be brought in mind. You know, perhaps the, the cavalry coming over the hill for Hamza is in the form of Keir Stammer and Anas Sarwa, you know, who are basically offering Scotland the square root of zero for the election, seem to be complacently thinking that seats are going to fall into their hands and don't have their troubles to seek this now. And because their, their position shadowing the government's policy in the Middle East is not popular in Scotland, uh, and their attitude to the constitutional question, you know, takes us back, the Labour Party, back about 50 years in Scotland. So perhaps Labour complacency might turn out to be uh, Hamza's secret weapon. And the striking thing is that in the poll in the Daily Mirror this morning, the SNP is still on course to win 40 MPs. Uh, so, so there you go. I mean, just, just in a sentence, uh, Alex Salmond, if Kate Forbes had won last year, would we be having this conversation now? Would we, would we be talking about the remarkable resilience of the SNP and yet another, uh, yet another gravity-defying revival? Well, Kate and her campaign had certain key aspects which were extremely attractive. I mean, there was her own attitude, personality, her willingness to sweep away the, uh, uh, the legacy of, uh, of Nicholas Sturgeon and, of course, some of, the, some of the things that are deeply troubling about the internal mechanisms of the SNP. I and mean, she was committed to reform that. She would have had her own challenges, uh, not least that uh, Kate's politics are, are a bit to the right, probably, in the centre of gravity of uh, not just the SNP, but Scottish opinion. But mm. uh, I suspect uh, she would have had the talent and ability to overcome that. We, we may never know, of course. What we do know is that she's an exceptionally talented politician, and you might have thought that a, a First Minister who doesn't have, he's not spoilt for choice in his uh, cabinet appointments at the present moment, would have brought that and unified his party and unified the national movement. Now, listen, but this game's not over yet. As you rightly say, it's all to play for, uh, not just in terms of an election, but more importantly, on Scottish independence, because the other aspect you haven't mentioned uh, in the opinion polls, and virtually every poll shows independence either at 50% or higher at the first moment. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits. Remember to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.